Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on February 20th, Lord's Day Service. words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use the preaching of your word to work in our hearts the kind of godliness which is profitable for all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of the most unique passages in Mark's gospel. And it has a lot to teach us. This story comes right after Jesus challenges the traditions of the elders. That's Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And when Jesus is challenging the traditions of the elders, the issue there is the issue of clean and unclean. And in challenging their traditions, Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, we're told, declared all foods clean. Immediately following that, Jesus now, in today's passage, makes this excursion into unclean Gentile territory. And so we're told in verse 24, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. This is Gentile country. It's located north of Israel in Syria. And he goes to a house in Gentile territory, and he's probably going there to rest. It says in verse 24, he did not want anyone to know. So he's wanting to get away. He's probably wanting to rest. But there is some theological significance to Tyre and Sidon, beyond just the fact that they are unclean Gentile territory. And that theological significance traces back to 1 Kings. You might remember in 1 Kings, Elijah also enters this same territory. And when Elijah enters this territory, enemy territory it was for Elijah, he has very different encounters with two different women. The first woman in 1 Kings 17 is a widow who trusts the Lord and feeds Elijah. You might remember the story. Her son gets ill and dies. Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead. The second woman Elijah encounters is Jezebel. She is found in 1 Kings 16 through 22. 
she is from this same region, this Gentile region north of Israel. And Jezebel, you'll remember, married King Ahab, the king of Israel. And she influenced Ahab to Baal worship. When Elijah confronts her, she threatens to kill Elijah. And so as Jesus now enters Gentile territory, enters this same territory that Elijah entered, he no doubt has in his mind the stories of Elijah. The story of Elijah dealing with the faithful widow on one hand and the Baal worshiper Jezebel on the other. And we see in verse 25 that Jesus does not get the privacy he seeks. It says, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. So what do we know about this woman? Well, we're told two things. First, she is in need. She comes to Jesus, she falls on her knees and begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And second, we learn that she's a Gentile. She is Syrophoenician, which again reminds us of the stories of Elijah in 1 Kings. And so the reader in his mind probably now has the same question that Jesus must have had when his peace, when his rest is interrupted by this woman. And that question is, well, is this woman going to be like the widow? Or is this woman going to be like Jezebel? And so this woman comes to Jesus. She falls at his feet and begs him to exercise the demon out of her daughter. How does Jesus respond? Well, we see verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you're paying attention, you will notice that Jesus calls her a dog because she is a Gentile rather than a Jew. And you might be thinking, wow, Jesus' response is so unchristlike. But it's not that Jesus is angrily pointing at her with fist raised, pointing, saying, no, no, you dog. Now, what Jesus is doing here in verse 27 is Jesus constructs a little parable to test her faith, to see if she is like the widow or to see if she is like Jezebel. And so the parable in verse 27, notice, has three parts. There's children, dogs, and bread. The children equals Israel. The dogs equal Gentiles. Dogs are unclean in the law. They are unholy, just like Gentiles are unclean and unholy in the law. And the bread equals Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And so in verse 27, in this little parable, what does Jesus say about the children? In other words, what does Jesus say about Israel? Well, look at it, verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And so, what does he say about the children? Well, the children must be fed first. Israel must be fed first. And so if the children are fed first, then that means the dogs are fed second. In other words, if Israel is fed first, that means the Gentiles are fed second. And this is dealing with the great redemptive historical issue of the new covenant. 
You see, one of the notable differences between the New Testament and the Old Testament is that the New Testament entails the explicit calling of the Gentiles. Now it's true, in the Old Testament we have provisions for Gentiles to become Jews, and it's true that in the Old Testament prophets we have this, this widespread look forward to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant one day. But the explicit calling of the Gentiles is postponed until the inauguration of the kingdom of the Messiah. And so we see in this story that Jesus' first inclination is to prioritize the children over the dogs. In other words, Jesus' priority is the nation of Israel over the Gentiles. And, and this is reinforced in the Matthew version of this story. In the Matthew version of this story, Jesus says explicitly in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, Jesus' ministry priority is Israel over the Gentiles. And then remember when Jesus sent the apostles out on their first mission. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he did not permit them to go beyond the borders of Israel. Why? Because his priority is Israel over the Gentiles. And so, why is this? Why is Jesus' ministry focused on Israel over the Gentiles? Well, the reason is because the time is not yet ripe. The complete project of bringing the Gentiles into the covenant begins full bore after the completed work of redemption in Jesus' death and resurrection. During Jesus' ministry, there are only these gradual hints of the Gentile inclusion. For example, in Matthew's gospel, we just see these little hints of the Gentile inclusion. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, you have a Gentile woman in Jesus' genealogy. Then in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, you have the Magi. They're from the east. The wise men, in other words, are Gentiles. We see in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, that's the story of the Gentile centurion. So we see these little hints of the Gentiles' inclusion in Jesus' ministry. And then when you turn to Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel, as Jesus gets closer to the cross, it becomes clearer that the Gentiles are included. For example, in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Then we see in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then we see in Matthew chapter 15, verse 39, Matthew 15 is the crucifixion chapter, and in verse 39, we have the centurion standing at the foot of the cross, and the centurion is the first human in Mark's gospel to explicitly identify Jesus as the Son of God. And so as we look at this story here in Matthew 7, or excuse me, in Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, and we have this story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman and we're trying to understand this odd parable in verse 27 about the children, the dogs, and the bread, we will never appreciate what Jesus is saying if we don't understand the momentous shift that is happening with Jesus' ministry. What is the momentous shift of the new covenant? Well, the momentous shift is the fact that the mystery is opening up. 
the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, are going to be included in the covenant. They are going to inherit the blessings of Israel. For so many ages, God singled out Israel from all the other nations. Even though Old Testament prophecies foretold the eventual inclusion of the Gentiles, many Jews didn't fully comprehend what would happen when the Messiah came. They didn't realize that God saves all nations by first choosing one nation. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, calls this the mystery of the gospel. In Ephesians 3.9, Paul calls it the mystery hidden for ages. And so, Jesus came for Israel first, and then for the Gentiles. And so, now that we see and understand Jesus' answer in verse 27, Jesus is basically saying to the woman in verse 27, no, I'm not going to heal your child, because Israel first, Gentiles second. I'm up here to rest. I'm on vacation. No, I'm not going to heal your child. You're a Gentile. Now that we understand his response to her, now we can see her response in verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So pay attention to the details of the woman's interaction with Jesus. Notice a few things. In verse 25, she fell down at his feet. So that means she is, she is approaching Jesus with a humble heart, and now she's arguing with Jesus. She asks for something, he says no, and then she comes back again. So that's called arguing. But notice, when she's arguing with Jesus, she has a humble heart. And then notice in verse 28 that she calls him Lord. And also notice in verse 28 that she is not offended that Jesus calls her a dog in this little parable. She accepts the description. And she is bold and humbly won't take no for an answer. And so Jesus, in verse 27, is testing her to see if she is more like the widow or more like Jezebel. And as you see the interaction unfold, it's clear she is more like the widow. And so what is Jesus' reply? Now in verses 29 and 30, he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So she comes to Jesus, asks, Will you heal my daughter? Will you exercise the demon from my daughter? Jesus says, No, Israel first, Gentile second. She then comes back and humbly persists upon Jesus. And then in verses 29 and 30, Jesus gives in and heals the woman's child. And this, of course, raises a question. If you're looking at this from the big picture of Scripture, from the redemptive historical perspective of Scripture, the question is wait, wait, why would he heal her daughter? If the time to bring the Gentiles into the new covenant is not ripe until Jesus' death and resurrection, well, this is before Jesus' death and resurrection, so why does he give in and heal the Gentiles' daughter? And this is where the story of Rahab helps us to understand. You see, not only does this woman remind us of the widow in 1 Kings 17, but this woman also reminds us of Rahab, another Gentile woman upon whom God has favor. In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends spies into the land. Rahab, the Gentile, protects the spies. 
who in turn protect Rahab and her family from the destruction that happens at Jericho. This is all in, Jer or this is all in Joshua chapter 2 through Joshua chapter 6. And so in that story, as you know, Rahab becomes a memorial of faith. Rahab is held up as an example of faith. Well, the Syrophoenician woman here in Mark chapter 7, just like Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, believes strongly enough to press Jesus' initial refusal. And so as Jesus is interacting with this Gentile before the time is right, before his death and resurrection, can he refuse mercy to this woman of faith when Rahab herself is found in Jesus' family tree? And the answer, as it turns out, is no. And so Jesus gives in and answers her request. And this helps us understand something of John chapter 6, verse 37, when Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In other words, yes, she is a Gentile, and this is before the doors of the new covenant are opened wide for Gentiles. And yet, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so we see this very unique story here in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And there are many things for us to learn from this story. So let's consider a few points of application from this very unusual story. First, this story teaches us about Jesus' family. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, he is clarifying who the people of God are. And you might remember back in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35, Jesus said when his family rejects him, Jesus said, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus is clarifying who his family is. He's clarifying who the people of God are. And so what's he saying when he says, whoever does my will, that is my family? What is he saying? Well, he's clarifying that his true family, in other words, the true family of God, consists of those who trust in him and do his will. Those who belong to Jesus' family extend beyond those who have Jewish blood. Jesus came for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. He came to restore Israel and also all of creation, including Gentiles. And we see in this story, in Mark chapter 7 of the Syrophoenician woman, and, and this is where redemptive historical theology connects to you right now. We see in this story with this woman that the true people of God are identified not by Jewish blood, the true people of God are not identified by nationalistic badges or DNA tests. The true people of God are identified by faith and loyalty to Jesus Christ. Notice in this story that the woman is initially refused by Jesus. And yet her trust and devotion to Jesus persists. To be a child of God you don't have to pack your bags and move to Israel. To be a child of God, you don't have to be a Jew. To be a child of God, you have to repent and move your loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is now the charter of the community of faith for the people of God. Jesus is our progenitor. He is our ultimate source. 
And since Jesus is our ultimate source, that means that like Jesus, his followers are to show benevolence to their enemies. And that leads us to the second thing we need to learn from this story. And that is that this story teaches us about enemies. Josephus, the, the, the Jewish historian from the first century, he describes the people of Tyre as notoriously our bitterest enemies. And one of the reasons is because Tyre had considerable economic dominance over Galilee. Tyre is an oppressor of Israel. And so when Jesus goes into the territory of Tyre and Sidon, he is going into enemy territory. And he interacts with a woman who is part of the enemy. A woman who is part of the enemy comes to him and asks for help. And so think back to the Old Testament. You've got Israel surrounded by enemies, frequently going to battle with them or being enslaved by them. Now we have Jesus, the new Israel, going into enemy territory. And so the question now is, how is the new Israel going to relate to the traditional enemies of Israel? Well, as we've already seen, Jesus came for all the nations. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, we saw that Jesus declared all foods clean. Here, in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, Jesus is declaring all people clean. And so could it be that when Jesus makes loving your enemies a central part of the Christian ethic on the Sermon on the Mount, he is saying that against the backdrop of Old Testament Israel, who had enemies all around, who had enemies that they fought to the death for thousands of years. And Jesus now has come as the new Israel to save the nations that were once the enemy of Israel. Jesus has come to save the enemy. Jesus here is going into enemy territory. And therefore, he instructs us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies. He instructs us as children in his household to love our enemies. And he now, in this moment, going into enemy territory as the new Israel, not taking up sword against them as had previously been done, now Jesus goes and he exercises the demon from this woman's child. He is modeling for us what it means to love your enemy. And so this story is teaching us first about Jesus' family, and second, this story teaches us about our enemies. Third, this story teaches us about entitlement. See, in this story, the Syrophoenician woman basically argues with Jesus. They have a back and forth. She asks Jesus to cast her child's demon out, and Jesus says, no, no. Israel first, Gentile second. But then she persists upon Jesus. She's arguing with Jesus, and she's showing us how to argue with Jesus. You see, when you and I argue with Jesus, I wonder just as Americans, as American evangelicals especially, I wonder if when you and I argue with Jesus, we do so from a posture of entitlement. And so we go to Jesus and say, you know, for example, Lord, please take this suffering from me. 
And when Jesus doesn't immediately remove it, we then take the posture of entitlement and we say, either out loud or in our hearts, and we say, but Lord, I've been faithful. I shouldn't be forced to suffer like this. We come at Jesus, and when we argue with him, I wonder if we do so with a posture of entitlement. And it's because we're a people of immediacy. We want it now. When our Wi-Fi goes out for five seconds, we are enraged, we pound the table in our fist and cry out imprecatory psalms on the cable company. We are a people of immediacy, and if it's not now, we cannot handle it. And so then, spiritually, when we go to the Lord in prayer, we make this request, and when he doesn't answer immediately, we can't comprehend, and we shake our fist at him, or at least in our hearts we do, just like we would at the cable company when the Wi-Fi's out for five seconds. We are a people of immediacy, and so we argue with the Lord, or maybe in our hearts at least, we wished we were arguing with the Lord, from this posture of entitlement. But notice the example that the Syrophoenician woman gives us. She teaches us that entitlement and faith do not go together. She goes to the Lord, asks for this healing, Jesus says no, and then she persists upon Jesus with faithfulness. Notice she does not appeal to her rights. She accepts Jesus' description of her, and she appeals to Jesus' mercy. Her posture is one of humility, not entitlement. Verse 25, she's on her knees. She tells Jesus, I'll take the crumbs. Give me the crumbs. And so faith and entitlement do not go together. But notice that boldness and humility do go together. And when boldness and humility go together, when they work together, it looks nothing like American entitlement. And so parents, train your children to not be entitled because entitled people have a hard time understanding mercy. Why is that the case? Why is it that entitled people have a hard time understanding mercy? Well, because entitled people think they have a right to something. And the mercy of God means that God shows you favor even though you have no right to it. And so this story teaches us about entitlement. Fourth, this story teaches us about prayer. She appeals to Jesus like we do in prayer. And you know, I wonder if Jesus is thinking of the Syrophoenician woman when he tells the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Go read that parable with this woman in mind. This woman perseveres in prayer. She begs Jesus while on her knees. And this reminds us to be humbly persistent in prayer. We have to remember, God doesn't always answer immediately. God seems like almost never answers immediately, and that's a problem for us, a people of immediacy. And so we have to remember, God doesn't always answer prayers immediately. He didn't answer this woman's prayer the first time she asked. And could it be in this story that Jesus is testing the Syrophoenician woman's faith with his tough parable? I mean, he calls her a dog. That's hard words. Could it be that he's testing her faith, testing 
to see what she'll do if her prayers aren't answered immediately? Could it be that often he wants to see if we have the faithfulness to continue praying for the thing? Could it be that he wants to see if we have the faithfulness to continue casting ourselves upon Christ in faith? There's got to be a reason the Lord doesn't always or even frequently answer our prayers immediately. And the Lord is a good Father. And maybe it's for your benefit that he doesn't answer that prayer immediately. Maybe it's for your benefit when that thing burdens you so deeply that you have to keep going to the Lord in prayer and keep going to the Lord in prayer. He is training faithfulness in you to continue praying for that thing that burdens you, to continue casting yourself upon Christ in faith for that thing that burdens you. And so if Christ does not answer your prayer immediately, that thing that's burdening you, that is always the first on your prayer list, if Christ does not answer that prayer immediately, pray again. Humbly and boldly pray again. And in so doing, even if the Lord never answers that prayer, you have been sanctified because you have grown in faithfulness. And so this story teaches us about prayer. And finally, as we close, this story teaches us about the Lord's Supper. I heard Rich Lusk point this out. The emphasis on bread in the first eight chapters of Mark, there's 20 references to bread in Mark chapters 1 through 8, and most of those references occur in Mark chapters 6 through 8. But then beginning in Mark chapter 9, bread disappears and the cup is featured. In the second half of Mark, bread only occurs at the Last Supper. And here's what's notable in this immediate context of this story. When you go back to Mark chapter 6, that's where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then Jesus walks on water. And then at the end of Mark chapter 6, Mark ties those two passages together when he says that the disciples were astounded when Jesus walked on water because they did not understand about the loaves. So in Mark chapter 6, the disciples don't understand about the bread that Christ gives. But here in Mark chapter 7, as Jesus now turns to Gentile territory, here we have the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman, and she does understand the bread. So the disciples don't understand the bread in chapter 6. The Gentile woman does understand the bread in chapter 7. Jesus as we've seen, initially refuses to give her the bread, and she says, oh, that's okay, I'll take the crumbs. Can I have the crumbs? And this passage influenced the Book of Common Prayer's Lord's Supper liturgy. In the 1552 edition, Thomas Cranver revised the Lord's Supper prayer to read as follows, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness but in thy manifold and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. You see, that's what we have to remember about the gospel. We are not worthy of his bread. We are not worthy even of the crumbs. And yet, he gives us the whole loaf. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you do not owe us the bread, but you give it abundantly. 
Help us to acknowledge your mystery and begin here on earth the song which is never to end in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Thank you.